What a joy it is to sing God's praise this morning together with you. And I was reminded this week that I have the best job in the world. And uh, I just wanted to say thank you for the privilege that you afford me to study God's Word all week. And then you being so gracious and kind to sit there and have me teach it to you. And uh, I am extra excited this morning as we launch into a new uh, study in a new book of the Bible. And uh, I've thoroughly enjoyed um, the preparation to teach through the book of Philippians. And I um, am excited to share with you some of the things that God's been opening up my eyes to and uh, showing me wonderful things in his word as the psalmist said that we should pray all the time. Lord, open my eyes. I might see wonderful things in your word and I trust that that will be your experience this morning as it has been my experience as I've been studying and preparing for this morning. But I was adding up the years and the books and this will be the 20th book of the Bible that I've had a chance to exposit from cover to cover in the last 17 years. Now, I was encouraged about that, but then one of the elders this morning said, well, Ken, you got 46 to go, so you better hurry up. You better get with it. You're running out of time. But uh, I don't want to rush these things because it's God's Word and there's so much truth in here, and so um, with that in mind, I want us to turn together to the book of Philippians. And I just want to read the first two verses this morning and preach a message that I trust will set the stage and set the tone for this entire series that could take, obviously, a number of months as we go through these four chapters in Paul's letter to the church in Philippi. Philippians chapter 1, verse 1, Paul and Timothy bondservants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons. Grace to you and peace from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for the fact that we can call you our Father because of our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're also thankful that we not only have access to you as the Father and through your Son, but we also have the Holy Spirit that we can depend on to understand your word and to apply your word to our lives. And we know you inspired, the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to write these words, every one of these words, every single one of these words uh, in this letter. And so I pray that the Holy Spirit would now illuminate us to understand exactly what he meant by what Paul wrote. And so help us today, and I do pray that you would open our eyes to see wonderful things in your word today. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, whether or not you're into books or movies in what is known as the sci-fi fantasy genre, which, by the way, I'm not. (laughs) I'm more of a realist. Ask my wife. I'm not much into fiction. Uh, I like 
real life movies about true stories and things like that. But even if you're not into that genre, sci-fi fantasy genre, you have heard of The Lord of the Rings, the best-selling novel by the Oxford professor J.R.R. Tolkien that was made into one of the highest-grossing film series of all times by the award-winning director Peter Jackson. And those of you that are um, hobbits at heart, I guess, you know that the first movie in the series is called what? The Fellowship of the Ring. For those of you that aren't hobbits at heart, let me bring you up to speed. The story is set in the fictional world of Middle-earth, and it's about this all-powerful ring that the Dark Lord Sauron forged at Mount Doom, which was later lost for centuries. As fate would have it, a young hobbit named Frodo Baggins inherited the ring from his uncle, and it's up to him to carry this ring to the land of Mordor so it can be destroyed in the fires of Mount Doom, where it was originally forged. The future of civilization hangs in the balance as Frodo and his eight companions who form the Fellowship of the Ring embark on their treacherous journey to destroy the ring and thus ensure the destruction of its evil maker, Sauron. Now, this fellowship is made up of a motley crew. And if you've seen the movies, you probably fell in love with some or all of these characters. There's the four hobbits, Frodo, Sam, Merry, and Pippin. There's Aragorn, a ranger of the north and a future heir to the throne of Arnor and Gondor. There's Boromar, who's the captain of Gondor. There's Gimli, the grumpy dwarf warrior. And then there's Legolas, who's an elfin prince who kind of looks like a chick and shoots a lot of arrows. And then there's the wizard named Gandalf. Now, the members of this loyal band could not be more different. And yet they unite together on this epic quest to save Middle-earth. And along the way, a special bond develops between them. Now, just so you know, I've watched parts of all those movies falling asleep in most all of them that I was watching. And uh, I didn't get any of that out of the movies. I still didn't know what the movies were about. I had to go on Wikipedia to find all that out. So, just so you know, I'm not a Lord of the Rings aficionado. I was even testing my knowledge with Jacob this, this last week, just finding out if I was getting the story straight. But, all that to say, this may sound like a strange way to introduce our study of Philippians. But, I would submit to you this morning that this letter portrays a heroic fellowship not unlike the one in the Lord of the Rings. Now granted, the mission of this fellowship is much different, but it is all about a loyal band of believers who the Lord God Almighty assembled together for the epic purpose of saving the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the members of this fellowship of the gospel, if you would like to call it, even as those in the fellowship of the ring, were willing to die for this great cause so that others might live. This mutual commitment to the advancement of the gospel at all costs was unforgettably expressed by their bold leader, Paul, when he said, for to me to live is Christ and to, what, die is gain. 
Well, I'm sure you realize that it's commonly believed that the main theme of Paul's letter to the Philippians is joy, which is what the majority of the commentaries emphasize and how I've always understood it over the years. And it makes sense in light of the 16 times that Paul mentioned the word joy or the word rejoice or rejoicing in this very upbeat, cheerful letter of encouragement. And so it's not surprising to me that Philippians is often referred to as the epistle of joy. Joy is an obvious, dominant, pervasive theme. Without question, the book exudes joy from start to finish. However, after reading this book over and over again, as I've prepared to teach through it, I noticed, uh, I began noticing a more subtle, underlying theme that that is much deeper and richer and serves as really the well out of which the joy that Paul talks so much about flows. Consider with me some of the other most repeated words besides joy and rejoice. The word fellowship or partnership is used six times. The word gospel is used nine times. And, of course, the word Christ, Jesus, Lord, Lord Jesus Christ, Lord Jesus, Christ Jesus, Jesus Christ, Savior, is used 51 times, which is close to half of the 104 verses. In other words, almost every other verse in this letter mentions Jesus Christ. As one commentator mentioned, he said, Philippians is about Christ. Philippians is about people in Christ Jesus. Philippians is about people who are in the fellowship of the gospel because they are in Christ. Let me show you some of the verses that convinced me that there was more going on in the book of Philippians than just joy. Follow along with me in Philippians chapter 1, verse 4. Paul says, I always thank God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. Verse 7, for it is only right for me to feel this way about you because I have, have, you, because I have you in my heart since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers of grace with me. Verse 12, now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else. Verse 18, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. Verse 27, Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Chapter 2, verse 2, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. 
Chapter 2, verse 14, do all things without grumbling or disputing so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. But even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. You too, I urge you rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. Verse 22, but you know of this, of his proven worth, talking about Timothy, that he served with me in the furtherance of the gospel like a child serving his father. Verse 25, referring to Epaphroditus, I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier who is also your messenger and minister to my need because he was longing for you all and was distressed because you had heard that he was sick. For indeed he was sick to the point of death, but God had mercy on him and not on him only, but also on me so that I would not have sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore I've sent him all the more eagerly so that when you see him again, you may rejoice and I may be less concerned about you. Receive him then and the Lord with all joy and hold men like him in high regard because he came close to death for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was deficient in your service to me. Chapter 3, verse 1, finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. Chapter 4, Verse 2, I urge Yodi and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. Indeed, true companion, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel, together with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Chapter, verse 10, but I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, You were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. What is he referring to? The offering that he they sent him. Verse 14. Nevertheless, you have done well to share with me in my affliction. You yourselves also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel, after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, but you alone, for even in Thessalonica you sent a gift more than once for my needs. No doubt, Paul was a joyful guy, and he wanted his readers to share his joy. But the question is, why was Paul always rejoicing, and why did he want them to rejoice with him? I think those verses that I've read make it clear that Paul's joy was based on their participation or partnership in the work of spreading the gospel to the ends of the earth. This this church's mutual commitment to the cause of Christ is what what brought Paul such great joy. And it was through this this shared struggle that Paul developed a, a special bond with the Philippian believers. And that's why of all Paul's 13 letters that are recorded in the New Testament, this is the most tender, this is the most intimate, this is the most personal letter he wrote. And it all goes back to the first reception in Philippi when this church was founded. I want you to turn back to the book of Acts, where we have, uh, thanks to Luke, one of Paul's traveling companions, his personal physician, 
we have a very extended account, a lengthy account of the birth of the church in Philippi. This is Paul's first reception, initial reception in the city of Philippi. And I think it's very interesting because this whole account in Acts chapter 16 foreshadows some of the very things that Paul was to later write to this group of believers in this church that he planted some 10 years later. Look at Acts chapter 16, verse 1, bringing you up to speed here. Um, Paul was on his second missionary journey, and uh, he was making his way through Asia Minor and planting churches along the way, and Philippi was one of the number of churches that he planted on his second missionary journey, but let's read together uh, chapter 16, verse 1. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra, and a disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek, and he was well spoken of by the brethren who were in Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted this man to go with him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those parts, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. Now, while they were passing through the cities, they were delivering the decrees which had been decided upon by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem for them to, be, for them to observe. So the churches were being strengthened in the faith and were increasing in number daily. They passed through Phrygia, the, the Phrygian and Galatian region, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And after they came to Mycenae, they were trying to go to Bithynia, and the Spirit of Jesus did not permit them. And passing by Mycenae, they came to Troas. And here we have that classic Macedonian vision. A vision appeared to Paul in the night, verse 9. A man of Macedonia was standing and appealing to him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. When he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. And so that's the setup for Paul to get to Philippi. The Spirit of God wanted Paul to preach the gospel, not in Asia, but in Europe. This was the first church or the first city in Europe that ever heard the gospel. And so they crossed the sea to Philippi, verse 11. So putting out to sea from Tiraz, we ran a straight course to Samothrace, and on the day following to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia a Roman colony, and we were staying in this city for some days. And on the Sabbath, we went outside the gate to a riverside where we were supposing that there would be a place of prayer, and we sat down and began speaking to the woman who had assembled. Interesting, Paul would always go to the synagogue first whenever he went to a city, but apparently there weren't enough Jews um, to uh, justify a synagogue And so uh, these God-fearing people were out by the riverside, uh, and that's where they they met together to pray. Verse 14, a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening, and the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. It's a great reminder that you can't open your own heart. Only God can open your heart to the gospel. So God graciously opened the heart of this woman, and it says, and when she and her household had been baptized, she urged us, saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come in my, into my house and stay, and she prevailed upon us. It may have been that, that 
that, that Lydia hosted the church in her home. As the church developed, maybe that was their meeting place. Notice how the events continue. Verse 16, it happened that as we were going to the place of prayer, a slave girl having a spirit of divination met us who was bringing her masters much profit by fortune telling. Following after Paul and us, she kept crying out saying, these men are bondservants of the most high God who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. She continued doing this for many days, but Paul was greatly annoyed and turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her, and it came out at that very moment. I think what's implied here is that this young girl not only was exercised of that demon, but she was saved. She was born again. But when her masters saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities. And when they had brought them to the chief magistrates, they said, these men are throwing our city into confusion, being Jews, and are proclaiming customs, which is not lawful for us to accept or to observe, being Romans. The crowd rose up together against them, and the chief magistrates tore their robes off them and proceeded to order them to be beaten with rods. When they had struck them with many blows, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to guard them securely. And he, having received such a command, threw them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. In other words, I'm going to make sure these guys don't get away. But, and this is probably what we all know and love the most about this account of the planting of the church in Philippi, Verse 25, but about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Here's Paul, joyful, despite his circumstances, worshiping God, no matter what, and suddenly there came a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison house were shaken, and immediately all the doors were open, and everyone's chains were unfastened. When the jailer awoke and saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. In other words, he was going to save his authorities' time because um, of killing him because that's, that was a punishment. If you were a jailer and you let your prisoners go free, they escaped, you would be killed. And so he was about to commit suicide, but Paul cried out with a loud voice saying, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And he called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And after he brought them out, he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? You know that jailer was listening to these guys singing down in the pit of that dungeon. And he was trying to figure out what in the world is going on. Who in the world are these guys? They're in jail. I just put them in the deepest, darkest place of this jail. They shackled them, and these guys are singing. Who are these guys? And then all of a sudden, this earthquake happens, freaks him out. He's about to kill himself. And then Paul and Silas treat him in a very gracious way, and the Spirit of God was working on this jailer's, this hardened jailer's heart, and he says, guys, what do I have to do to be saved? I, I want what you have, in other words. 
And they said, verse 31, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved and your, and your household, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him together with all who were in this house. And he took them that very hour of the night and washed their wounds. And immediately he was baptized, he and all his household. And he brought them into his house and set food before them and rejoiced greatly, having believed in God with his whole household. What is the result of the gospel? What does the gospel produce in a person's life? What? Great joy and rejoicing. You starting to pick up some of the themes that we're going to see in this letter that Paul wrote 10 years later? It was all, this is where it all started. Verse 35, now when day came, the chief magistrate sent their policemen saying, release those men. And the jailer reported those words to Paul saying, the chief magistrates have sent to release you. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. You're free to go, but Paul said to them, they've beaten us in public without trial. Men who are Romans and have thrown us into prison, and now they're sending us away secretly? No, indeed, but let them come themselves and bring us out. Notice verse 38, the policemen reported these words to the chief magistrates. They were afraid when they heard that they were Romans. Oops. Romans weren't ever to be beaten or crucified, or harmed in any way. If you were a Roman citizen, you were, you, you were uh, protected from that. They didn't realize that they were Romans at the time, and so they came and appealed to them, and when they had brought them out, they kept begging them to leave the city. In other words, they had to come and eat crow, and say, guys, I am so sorry. Would you just, please, would you just leave? Would you just leave? And they went out of the prison and entered the house of Lydia, and when they saw the brethren, they encouraged them and departed. Not only did I want you to see and hear and feel some of what we will be learning about and studying and seeing in the book of Philippians that really had its, had its origin in Paul's initial visit to the city of Philippi, I wanted you to see and hear the stories of the first three converts, an unlikely group of, four, of founding members a, a God-worshipping businesswoman, a, a demon-possessed slave girl, and a hardened Roman jailer. I mean, you couldn't get more different than that. And yet God sovereignly chose to open up their hearts and to save them and gather this motley crew of Philippians together and, and transform them into a fellowship of the gospel. You say, what does that mean? Uh, What's a fellowship of the gospel? Well, let me explain. After Paul left Philippi, we can follow the story in chapter 17 and, and onwards in the book of Acts, but this freshly planted church decided to support Paul's ongoing work in other cities. And although they didn't have much to give, by the way, these were the, the, the church of Philippi, Philippi was one of those churches that Paul talked about in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, the, the churches of Macedonia who gave out of their poverty. They were one of the churches. And so they didn't have much to give, but they made several contributions to Paul's ministry. Twice while he was in the neighboring city of Thessalonica in chapter 17 of Acts, and then once um, when he was at Corinth. You can see that in 2 Corinthians eleven nine. 9. 
Well, Paul came back to see them on his third missionary journey as he was on his way to Jerusalem to bring an offering to the impoverished believers in, in Jerusalem. We see that in Acts chapter 20. And as you know, while Paul was in Jerusalem, he was arrested and hauled off to Rome where he was put under house arrest. And naturally, when the, the church in Philippi, these loyal followers of Paul, these loyal, faithful followers of Christ, heard that Paul was in prison and didn't know if Nero was going to release him or execute him. They were sad and worried about him, but not just about him, they were worried and concerned about the the ongoing work of the gospel. And so they sent a man from their church named Epaphrodites to check on Paul and, and bring him another monetary gift. And as we read already in the book of Philippians chapter 2, during his time with Paul, Epaphrodites got deathly sick. And word got back to the believers in Philippi and it caused them even more sorrow and even more anxiety. Well, by God's grace, Epaphrodites recovered and returned home with this letter from Paul to this beloved group of believers. Now, this book of Philippians, the letter to the Philippians, was one of four letters that Paul wrote during his first Roman imprisonment. There's, he wrote Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. Those are known as the four prison epistles. Now, this particular letter was written around 62 AD, which again, I mentioned, was around 10 years after Paul had founded the church, 10 years after what we just read about in Acts 16. And I think what's obvious about this letter and, and so refreshing about this letter is that it wasn't initiated by some crisis in the church. And it wasn't written to answer any profound theological questions or to address some major heresy or sin issue in the life of the church like some of the other letters Paul wrote, like the letter to the Corinthians. Uh, very few people say, hey, what's your favorite book of the Bible? Oh, yeah, I love Corinthians, man. I love watching Paul spank those guys that carnal church. Furthermore, the book of Philippians is not a formal treatise like Romans or Ephesians that can be easily organized in a, in a structured outline. It's, it's more like a, it, it just reads like a free-flowing letter, which, which makes it hard to impose any kind of rigid outline. And you can see on this little outline that I provided you this morning. Hopefully you got that on your way in the back. If you didn't get it, you can grab it on the way out. But I just, just, just came up with a really simple kind of overarching um, outline that follows kind of the general flow of each of the four chapters. But again, I think it defies very, being very specific in, in the outline. Why? Well, because it just simply reads like a, a warm personal letter from a friend to a group of special friends, some people that you had a special bond with. And that's what this letter is. It's essentially a thank you letter in which Paul expressed his appreciation, his affection for the members of the church in Philippi for faithfully and sacrificially supporting his ministry through their financial gifts and by sending one of their own, Epaphroditus, to minister to him during his imprisonment. At the same time, he took the opportunity 
hey, I'm writing a letter to say thanks. Uh, I might as well include some other things. So he, 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 he provided them a, an encouraging update about his life and ministry. That, hey, just if you're wondering, I'm in prison, but the gospel isn't. I'm under arrest, but the gospel continues to flourish. In fact, my imprisonment is turning out for the better, for the cause of the gospel. In fact, people in Caesar's, not only are soldiers, Roman soldiers getting saved, but even some of Caesar's own household, some of his own family members. And so he's encouraging them. And, 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 and so despite his, his circumstances, Paul was rejoicing that, that Christ was still being proclaimed, the gospel was still making progress. And that was due in part to their ongoing support. Paul also devoted a portion of this letter to address some some problems in the church that Epaphroditus most likely had shared with him during his visit. As we'll see, he exhorted them to continue to live in a manner worthy of the gospel, to work humbly and harmoniously together, to rejoice when they experience persecution and and suffering. He, He also warned them about false teachers in chapter 3 who were seeking to infiltrate the church. And he also informed them of of a possible visit from Timothy. And so this letter really served a number of purposes. But when I read this paragraph in Kent Hughes' commentary, those thoughts that I had begun to have as I was reading through the, the book of Philippians and I came at it with this perspective of this is all about joy and maybe even joyful unity. We could expand it to joyful unity. And I began to read it and read it and read it. And I started to, I began to see this other theme, this, this underlying purpose to this letter. And I was thinking, okay, and I even put a title on the book, just tentatively, a tentative title, Together for the Gospel. And then when I got to this commentary, and it was one of the last commentaries, after reading about 15 different commentaries, I finally picked up Kent Hughes' commentary, and this is what I read. He said, quote, under and around all these purposes was the reality of their fellowship in the gospel. And I was like, yes! I agree with that. He goes on, he said, no punch and cookies here. Well, what is this fellowship of the gospel? He says, no punch and cookies here. This is the fellowship of compatriots bound together in a great cause. And then he said this, you will not understand the letter if you do not understand this. Thank you, Kent Hughes. And so all that to say, that's why I've chosen to title this series Together for the Gospel together for the gospel. That's the point of the book of Philippians, that they were, Paul and the believers in Philippi, joined together for the cause of the gospel. And they were joyfully partnering in the cause of Christ. And I think that this primary theme of of Paul's partnership with the Philippians in the work of the gospel is alluded to in the opening words of this letter. Now, whenever um, I read the initial verses of a letter, I'm tempted to, maybe like you, just skim over these introductory remarks that 
this, this, this brief introduction, but I want to tell you that there are some very helpful clues to understanding the rest of the letter. And Paul carefully crafted his customary greeting to set the tone and reflect the, the thrust of the entire letter. And if you're familiar with Paul's letters, you know that, that he typically, at the beginning of all of his letters, he, he, he introduced himself along with all of his associates who might have been with him at the time. Uh, he identified the recipients of the letter who he was writing to. He invoked a blessing on them, and then he interceded for them. He said, hey, and just so you know, I'm always praying for you, and this is specifically what I'm praying for you. And that's pretty much what he does here at the beginning of his letter to the Philippians. And so I've broken up these first three verses into three parts. The servants, those who are writing the letter, the, the saints, those who are going to be reading the letter, and the salutation, and that's a reference to the greeting. And so let's just look together at these three simple points this morning. But again, I want you to notice how this theme of together for the gospel, joyfully partnering in the cause of Christ, is it begins to, to ooze out ever so slowly from these three verses. Let's look first of all at the servants. The servants. Paul says, Paul and Timothy. Paul and Timothy. Now, when we write a letter today, we sign our names where? At the beginning or at the end? We always sign at the end. But in ancient letters, the author would introduce themselves at the beginning of the letter. Hi, this is Paul. And that's just what they did. I mean, don't do that with your emails. It would be weird. You know, sometimes you have to do that with text, right? If they don't recognize, you don't think they recognize your number, they haven't sorted your number, you say, hi, this is so, and you introduce yourself first, right? In texting, maybe that's the, the new genre, right? We can be like Pauline in the way we text one another. So Paul introduces himself. He says, Paul, which was his new name because he was born a Jew and he grew up in a very strict Jewish home and actually excelled as a Jewish rabbi. And uh, he was originally named Saul, probably after the first king of Israel, uh, King Saul. And uh, he went by that name until he was radically converted by Christ on the road to Damascus and commissioned to be the apostle to the Gentiles. You can read that account in Acts chapter 9. But I always am amazed to think about, to consider, here is the most infamous persecutor of the church, and God miraculously saved him and turned him into the most influential pastor, preacher in the church, and, and the one who was the most responsible for bringing the gospel to the ends of the earth. That's the grace of God. And that's what Paul said. I am what I am by the grace of God. Don't, don't give me any attaboys. You don't need to praise me. I don't get any glory for this because I was the least of the apostles. I was the worst of sinners. And God chose to pluck me out of my sin to show that he could save anybody. If he could save me, he could save anybody. Paul's ministry is traditionally organized into three missionary journeys during which he traveled around preaching the gospel and planting churches in various cities throughout Asia Minor, including the city of Philippi. Perhaps the best insight into Paul's life is his own testimony, which he shared later in this letter. Look at chapter 3, probably one of uh, my personal favorite sections of the letter 
uh, uh, the book of Philippians. Look at Philippians chapter 3. Paul's testimony, he says, although I myself might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel and the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law found blameless. This was Paul's business card, if you will, his spiritual business card before he was born again. And he would pull this out and flash it and say, this is who I am. And he was trusting in his own righteousness to be right with God. Verse 7, there was a radical change that took place in Paul's heart and mind. But whatever things were gained to me, I thought all these things were helping me get to heaven. Whatever things were gained to me, those things I've counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Every once in a while when you're reading Paul, you're just like, Paul, time out, bro. I can't keep up with you. You're wearing me out because he can just get after it. And what a powerful testimony of the transforming work of the gospel uh, in this man's life. And he was the author of this letter. He also mentions Timothy. Timothy who was Paul's young protege and son in the faith. And I think he was mentioned here, not because he was the co-author of this letter, but he was simply one of Paul's co-workers who had been with him. If you remember reading Acts 16, he was there with him at the very beginning, and he had helped plant the church there in Philippi. And so Timothy was known and, and loved by the Philippians, and And Paul hoped to send his trusted disciple to visit them again soon. In fact, he mentions that in chapter 2, verse 19. He says, But I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly, so that I also may be encouraged when I learn of your condition, for I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. For they all seek after their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. But you know of his proven worth that he has served with me in the furtherance of the gospel, like a child serving his father. What a great description of this young man that Paul mentions here in the beginning of this letter, Paul and Timothy. Notice how he describes them. He says, Paul and Timothy, what does it say in your Bible? Bond servants. How about bond servants? That's what it's in my bond servants or bond slaves of Christ. Jesus. The word there is the Greek word doulos. Now, I think this is interesting because most of the time Paul introduced himself at the beginning of letters as an what? Apostle of Jesus Christ. That was typically how he introduced himself, as an apostle of Jesus Christ. But Unlike other difficult letters he wrote where he had to confront serious, serious issues and he didn't Uh, He had to stress his position of authority. He didn't have to do that with the Philippians. Why? He shared a sweet friendship with them, and and they loved him, and they, they respected him. He didn't have to throw his weight around, if you will. And as an apostle, which Paul was, 
He just didn't mention it here. Paul stood in a position of authority over others, as a superior, if you will. But by calling himself a bondservant, a doulos, he was setting himself alongside others as a fellow servant. And he was actually modeling, right here in the very first sentence of his letter, the very first phrase, he was modeling the kind of humble, Christ-like, servant, saint perspective that he would call them to in the next chapter. You remember chapter 2, verse 3, I'm sure, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own interests, personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a, what? Bondservant. It's the only other time this word bondservant is used in this letter. When Paul calls himself a bondservant, and then he refers to Christ as a bondservant. And so Paul was modeling here the Lord Jesus Christ, who took the position, assumed the role of a slave by coming to earth and living and dying in our place. And so Paul considered himself a slave who had been bought and owned by Christ, which meant Christ was his Lord and his master, and he was totally dependent on him and at the disposal of his master. By the way, this is, I think, how all of us should view ourselves. We have, we, we've all been bought with a price, and our lives are not our own. We belong to Christ, and we should no longer live for ourselves, but for him who died and rose again on our behalf. Listen, to be a Christian is to be a bondservant. I know you might not find that very encouraging to view yourself as a slave, but I've got news for you, that's what the Bible calls you, and that's what the Bible calls me. And when we are to find great joy, Paul was not saying, well, I'm just a lowly slave. No, he found great joy in being a bondservant of Christ. I had a dear friend years ago, she had a license plate on her beat-up old car that said, do loss, front and back, driving this little beat-up thing all around L.A., and it just said, do loss, on her life. I loved it. I have a pastor friend I recently went to lunch with, and as we were sitting across the table at the Mexican restaurant, I noticed something on his, some ink on his, the back of his wrist, and I was like, hey, what is that, man? Do you, like, get something on you? He goes, no, no, check it out. And he had tattooed on his wrist, Christos Dulos. Christ's slave. And so he, he told me, he said, the reason why I did that right there, Ken, is because as I'm praying or as I'm typing a sermon or I'm writing a note, I see it right there, and it's a constant reminder that I'm a bondservant of Christ. So we see here Paul introducing himself and Timothy, referring to themselves as bondservants. Let's look at the the readers, the saints, the saints. Notice he says, he addresses those he's writing to, he says, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi. To all the saints in Christ Jesus. Notice he says, to all the saints, which foreshadowed the, the call to unity that he would voice later in this letter, that they were to come together, one mind, one heart, striving together, all of them. Not just some of them, all of them. 
And so he's including everyone here. Every, everyone in the church was included, from the youngest to the oldest, from the least mature to the most mature, from the members to the leaders. He described them all as saints, which, by the way, refers to their spiritual standing in Christ as those who, based on their faith in Christ, have received his imputed righteousness and, and holiness. That's what the word saints means. If you were to translate that word saints, it literally means holy ones. To all the holy ones in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi. Those who have been set apart from sin to serve God. Now I know that all of you, uh, hopefully most of you, would consider yourself a Christian. But do you consider yourself a saint? A saint, that, that word has lost its, its rich theological meaning in our day and age um, in the church. Typically, the term saint is a, is a special title that's reserved for a, a few select dead people whose life has been examined by a, a church council to see if they're qualified for sainthood because they achieve some higher level of spirituality. But according to the scriptures, the term saint is not a term that only applies to this elite group of or a small group of super spiritual people. Every genuine Christian qualifies for sainthood. In fact, that's how Paul ends the letter. Chapter 4, verse 22, all the saints, excuse me, verse 21, greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. I mean, he's just, he's just throwing this word about saints. Saints around all over the place. Anybody who was a Christian was, in Paul's mind, a saint. Considered him a saint. And, and by the way, these saints were alive. They weren't dead. They were alive and, and well, and they were serving in the church in Philippi. And so what that means is that sainthood is not something we achieve over time. It's not based on the approval of others. It's something Christ achieved for us and is based on his approval alone. It's not something we become it's something that we are. We are all saints in God's eyes, and we need to live like it. That's the practical point. We're not considered saints. We're not called saints. We can walk around, you know, and say, hey, I'm a saint. How about you? No, it's to humble us and remind us of this privilege of having been chosen and set apart by God as his holy possession, and it reminds us that we have a duty to live holy and blameless lives. And that's exactly what Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 14. Do all things without grumbling or disputing so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse Generation, you could say, in the midst of an unholy generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. Listen, the longer we're Christians, the more holy we should be, and the brighter our lives should shine in the darkness. Whether it's the unholy world of ancient Philippi or the unholy world of Montgomery County, we're to shine like lights. Notice he brings them quickly back down to earth. <laughs> They're saints, yes, in Christ Jesus. That's their standing, their heavenly standing in Christ who are in Philippi. But oh, by the way, you're in Christ, in the heavenlies, seated with him. You're considered a saint, but you're still in Philippi. You still got a life to live. You still got a job to do. 
Let me tell you a little bit about Philippi. As we learned from Acts 16, it was a city in Macedonia, which we know today as northern Greece. It was located about 11 miles inland from the Asian Sea on the Ignatian Way, which was the main thoroughfare, the main highway running from Asia to Rome. It was originally a Greek city that got its name from Philip II of Macedon, who was the father of Alexander the Great, who founded this city in 356 B.C. Later, in 167 B.C., it became a part of the Roman Empire. In 42 B.C., was the scene. it was a scene of a decisive battle in which Anthony and Octavian, you say, who are they? Well, Octavian was later declared Emperor Caesar Augustus. The plot thickens here. They defeated Brutus and Cassius. And so after the war, many veterans settled there, and the city was designated a Roman colony, and so, uh, and so fully adopted the political structure and the culture of Rome. It was said to be a miniature likeness of Rome, a, a, a mini-Rome. That's Philippi. And what came with that is that everyone who lived in Philippi enjoyed all the rights and privileges of a, of a Roman citizen. So even if you weren't living in Rome, you still had the privilege of of being a Roman citizen, which Paul would allude to and appeal to in the third chapter when he said in verse 20, for our citizenship is in heaven. You think it's a big deal that you're a Roman citizen? Which they thought was a big deal, by the way. Well, our citizenship is in heaven. Let me remind you, you're not a citizen of earth. You're not a citizen of the United States. You are a citizen of heaven heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he, is even, that he has even to subject all things to himself. That verse will preach four weeks away from an election, which whatever the turnout is, we are in big trouble. But you know what? It doesn't matter who the next president is because Jesus is still going to be the king. And we are citizens, not of the United States of America, we are citizens of heaven. Notice back in verse 2, he says, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons. This is the only letter in which Paul specifically addresses the leadership of the church in his greeting. I asked myself, well, why would that be? Well, possibly it was the overseers and deacons who were the ones who initiated and coordinated and administrated the gifts of the church and sent to him, and so he gave them special attention. I would just add that This is just one of many references throughout the New Testament that mandates and models for us a two-office system of church government consisting of elders and deacons. We see that in 1 Timothy 3, the qualifications of elders, the qualifications of deacons. There's no more qualifications for anyone else, just elders and deacons. And so God intended every church to be ruled by a group of humble, godly shepherds called elders who are assisted by a group of wise, dependable servants called deacons. And the job of an elder is to oversee the spiritual matters of the church. The job of the deacon is to administrate the temporal, practical matters of the church in order to free the elders up to pray and to preach and teach and counsel God's word. Acts chapter 6 is an example, a model of the way elders and deacons should interact. And so that's the readers, 
the saints. Now let's look quickly at the salutation. The salutation. Verse 2. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. By the way, this, is, this greeting is worded exactly the same in six other letters. Romans, 1 and Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philemon. This was Paul's favorite greeting, favorite blessing, if you will, where he combined the traditional phrases that the Greeks and the Hebrews used to greet one another, and he Christianized them. He added deeper, richer, fuller meaning. And so he says, he uses the Greek greeting, which was grace, and he says, grace to you. We know grace is God's unmerited favor to undeserving sinners. We know we're all saved by grace, but I think this particular blessing was not referring to the grace that saves us, but the grace that sustains us. It's the daily grace that God supplies to deal with all the pressures and problems of life. It's the Hebrews 4.16, go to the throne of grace with confidence to receive mercy and grace to help in time of need. That's what he's wishing them. He also wishes them peace. Peace, which was the Jewish greeting, shalom, and we know that when we repent of our sin and receive God's free gift of grace, we're, we're justified, we're reconciled to him, we're at peace with him. It says that in Romans 5.1. But again, I don't think this is referring to our reconciliation with God. But I think Paul was referring to the daily internal peace, the, the calm, the confidence that God grants us in the midst of the ever-changing circumstances of life. This is the peace that passes all understanding. In Philippians chapter 4, be anxious for nothing. But with thanksgiving, make your requests be known to God and the, what? The peace of God which transcends understanding, which is beyond understanding, will guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. The point is, as Christians, we need God's grace and peace every day. And when we rely upon his grace to live our lives, then we'll experience his peace that passes all understanding. Notice that these dual blessings have a common source from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul put God and Jesus on the same level here, which means he believed that God and Jesus were the same, they were equals. This is a clear reference to the deity of Christ, the belief that Jesus is God, which is the central truth of Christianity. The question now is, so what? We're starting a study in the book of Philippians. So, so what? How, how is this relevant to my life? This ancient letter written thousands of years ago, how, how is this going to help me in my life today? Listen, every church in every generation has the joy and the privilege of sharing Paul's struggle for the cause of the gospel. And that includes this church. That, that, that we, as members of the body of Christ at Lakeside, have the joy and the privilege of partnering together in the cause of Christ. This church, just like the church in Philippi, is a fellowship of the gospel. Have you ever considered yourself as a member, as a participant in the, this fellowship of the gospel? I mean, we are a motley crew. Have you looked around lately? I mean, we could not be more different. There are so many things that make us different. 
But what brings us together is that we are all saved by the grace of God. He's called us out of this world. He's joined us together for the epic purpose of sharing the gospel with others so that they come to, come to know Christ. And so the gospel is ultimately what we have in common. It's the, the greater progress of the gospel is what should connect us. It, it's what should consume us. It, it is what should compel us. Listen, we don't gather together simply because we all live in the same geographical area or we're all in the same social level or we all share the same doctrinal beliefs, or we all like the same style of music, or we all root for the same sports teams, or all our kids go to the the same schools, or all our kids are homeschooled, or we have this or that in common. None of these things are why God has brought us together, or what should keep us together. These are all secondary things. Listen, we have a far greater, much more special bond than any of these things. We gather because of the gospel and for the cause of the gospel. We, we gather to praise the gospel as those who have been impacted by the gospel. And we gather to preach the gospel, to proclaim the gospel. We gather for the progress of the gospel. And so what is required of us? It's what Paul told the Philippians in chapter 1, verse 27. He says, hey, just just one thing, just just, just only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. Just, Just live in a manner worthy of the gospel, which includes, follow with me here, which includes following Paul's example here in Philippians by finding joy and peace and contentment in Christ, regardless of our circumstances, which will catch the eye of unbelievers and convince them that Christ can make a difference in their lives like he has ours. I appreciated what Chuck Swindoll said in his commentary, just a short little commentary on Philippians called Experiencing Outrageous Joy. And this is what he said, quote, joy is the most obvious advertisement that he or she has something that can make a difference in life. In other words, the best advertisement for Christianity is a joyful Christian. He went on, he said, Joy is the flag flown over the castle of our heart, announcing that the king is in residence. And when we get down to the dumps, there ain't no flag waving over our castle. <laughs> And there's no reason to believe anybody, for anybody to believe to, to say there's the king's in residence, right? I mean, you know how that works when the, when the king's at home or the queen's at home, the flag's flying. When it's not, it's not there. It's a great analogy. If he were to look at your life, is there a flag of joy flying over the castle of your heart that convinces them, yep, the king's in residence, the king's in, king's in the house. This is how joy intersects with the gospel in Philippians. You're like, hey, I'm kind of bummed out. I always thought that Philippians was all about joy, and I still think it is, and what are you saying, man? Now you're throwing, you're kicking joy to the side here, and I'm not kicking joy to the side. I'm saying, no, joy intersects the gospel in Philippians. What is it? Joy is what makes the gospel sparkle and shine. When Jesus was born in Bethlehem, the angels appeared to the shepherds, and they said what? You remember? Behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which is for all the people. 
So heaven declares that the gospel is good news of great joy, not just for me, not just for you, but for everyone. And so the gospel should produce great joy in us, which in turn promotes how great the gospel is to unbelievers. Did you follow that? The gospel should produce great joy in us, which in turn promotes how great the gospel is to unbelievers. In other words, when we focus our lives on Christ and experience genuine, deep down joy, even when we're going through tough things, that makes Christianity contagious. Because others will see our joy and it's beyond their understanding. It's a peace that passes all understanding. They don't get it. But they want it. I've shared this story before, but I, it was brought back to my mind as I was wrapping this up in my mind that when I was in high school, by the grace of God, I was striving to live a, a godly life and be a witness in my public high school for for Christ and sharing the gospel with my friends and, and, and the, the guys on the sports teams and the National Honor Society and all the other platforms that the Lord gave me to influence uh, people's lives. And, and, and so I was just, every day, man, I'd, get, I'd wake up and I'd get ready and I'd sit down in my beanbag chair and I'd have my quiet time and, 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 I'd, and I'd turn on some like Petra rock, Christian rock music, you know, get me pumped up for the day like I was going out you know, to play a game or something, and, and I'd go down and eat breakfast, I'd jump on the bus, and I was, I was pumped, I was ready to make an impact for Christ on my public high school. And so I would just go about my day and, and just do the best I could to make an impact in people's lives, but I will never forget this one experience. As long as I live, in the rush of changing classes between periods, you know how it is, kids, if you're in a public high school, uh, it's just chaos in the hallways. Everybody's going to and fro, and lockers are popping open and slamming, and, and it's, just, it's just chaos. And, and, and so here I was at my locker, and, 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 and I was opening my locker, and I was grabbing my books for my next class, and, 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 and I had a locker right next to Darlene Pizzi. Still remember Darlene Pizzi. And we were, we were just scrambling to get our stuff out, and we both had the next class, and, 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 and in, in the midst of that chaos in the hallway, it's like time stopped. And she looked at me and she said, Ken, why are you always so happy? And it was like the heavens opened and the angels sang. And I was like, yes! Opportunity to share Christ. Christ is the reason why I was always so happy. And so I said, hey, Darlene, let's go to class and I'll tell you. And I had the opportunity before class started just sitting next to each other at our desk, you know, to tell her about Christ and to share the gospel with her. I'll confess to you that I haven't had that experience in recent years. And I long for that experience again. Because I think that's what Paul was so excited about, what he was so joyful about what he was rejoicing about here in the book of Philippians was just the joy of knowing Christ and the joy of sharing Christ with others. I'm excited to go on this journey together with you as a fellowship of the gospel.
and learn how to be what this church in Philippi was to Paul and to develop that special bond together as a church as we journey together for the epic purpose of saving the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for this precious book, this letter that we um, just appreciate so much. I'm sure if we were to pull the audience today that many would say that this is, is and has always been their favorite book of the Bible, and there's a reason for that. There's just something about it that, that just warms our heart when we read it, and there's so many favorite verses and passages that we've memorized over the years that we've sought to apply and put into practice in our lives. And maybe for some, this is the first time they've ever opened the book of Philippians and it's all new to them. And I pray that you would get them excited about what they have in store to learn how they can grow and mature. And Lord, I just pray, Lord, that you would make us a joyful church. Lord, the kind of, that we kind of be the kind of people who respond to life's circumstances with, with joy because our joy is not in our circumstances. It's in Christ and he never changes and, and that that would catch the eye of a lost and, and hurting world who, who's just on a roller coaster ride of emotions and that they would want to know what makes us different and that we would have the, the joy and the privilege of sharing the gospel with them and how Christ can change their life as well and be their joy and can be their all in all. And so we pray you bless this study for your glory and honor. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.